For those of you that are familiar with scriptures, you'll know that the Bible is written in such a way that there's just so much compressed into a statement or into a paragraph, isn't it? So you read through something like that and you go like, okay, well, what just happened? <laughs> How many of you feel like that sometimes? You read it as you go like, okay, you got no idea. The economy of that verse is so, the wealth of that verse is just so much that I actually don't know where to start. What is it about? And so as we walk through the book of John, it's important for us to walk through it systematically, incrementally, so that we can understand line upon line, precept, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, until we understand all of it. So um, some of you might be diving in with us right now, and so some of it might not make complete sense, but I think it will uh, sufficiently enough so, anyhow. But um, when I look at something like this, and there's just so many things to dive into, I realized Dave Zadek prophesied a few weeks ago that we'll be done only in 2027 with the book of John. <laughs> and so, so I am actually going to take a wider view of this portion where Jesus is speaking. But first, I'd like to ask you, how many of you are interested in what Jesus, the man who has been undeniably the most influential to ever walk upon the face of the earth, what does this Jesus say about himself? Right? I know a lot of people have thoughts about him. What does he think about himself? How many of you are interested in knowing that, right? Okay. Well, that's what this is about to a degree. But there's a second question that we want to answer today. And that is, how many are interested here in what Jesus says regarding those he will resurrect from the dead at the end times? Well, he had a lot to say about the resurrection of the dead, which means... People pass away, they get buried, and eventually one day he rises, he, he will raise him from the dead. You want to know who he's going to raise from the dead and what he says about that? Well, that's what today is about. So according to Jesus, in this passage, every human who has ever lived, billions and billions of people will all be raised from the dead, every single one of them. And I'll show you in this passage that he says that. You see, he actually lists two kinds of resurrections. There's a spiritual resurrection from spiritual death, which is happening now to many. And then there's going to be a physical resurrection from physical death, which will happen to every person who ever lived. This is what Jesus is teaching in John 5, 18 through 29. You see, everyone does not experience spiritual resurrection. Now, we know this to be true. Not everybody spiritually comes alive. But every person will physically one day be resurrected. Now, in this portion of Scripture, Jesus addresses both those resurrections. He first addresses the spiritual resurrection of all believers, and then addresses the physical resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. So it is important to understand how Jesus got to the subject of resurrection. So as an introduction to this conversation of resurrection, Jesus first claims before all of the Jews and the Jewish leaders there, the religious leaders, he claims to be equal to God. Have you ever found that 
There's certain things you just don't post on Facebook if you're not looking for a fight, right? <laughs> if, you, if you're looking for a fight, go ahead and post that little statement you have. <laughs> but if you're looking to not have a fight, don't post it, all right? <laughs> now, I've realized that too many times. But Jesus, I mean, really, did he have to? Did he really have to be a man, a Jewish man, speaking to a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day at a well who had five husbands and now is currently living with somebody that she's not married? Did he have to speak to her? Or, I mean, really, there are so many people who could be speaking to, but that right there stirred the pot, didn't it? How dare a religious Jew, a rabbi, speak to a woman like that in public? Then he goes to the pool of Bethesda, which is what we talked about last week. It's the portion right before this that Dave was mentioning. He walks past a multitude, the Bible says, a multitude of diseased, sick people who are invalids laying at this pool. He walks past them and he goes to this one man. And it's almost like he whispers to him in private, hey, do you want to be well? And the guy couldn't answer him other than complain about his disease. And Jesus says, pick up your bed, walk. The guy goes, okay. He picks up his bed and walks. After 38 years of being lame, having nobody in his life to help him, he was hopeless. He was helpless. He had no future. And Jesus just makes him get up and walk. The problem is it's on the Sabbath. Why did Jesus go all the way there and in front of all of those Jews raise somebody from the dead on the Sabbath. Couldn't he not have waited another day? This guy's been lame for 38 years, but he has to like wait for the Sabbath. Jesus is stirring the pot. Jesus is posting the statement publicly that he knows is busy stirring up this army of Jewish re religious leaders and he's escalating their aggravation and their hatred toward him because he knows there's a specific time where the cross is at in the future and he's on his way there. The Bible says he put his face like flint and he was going there. And he knew exactly how to time this thing out. And so Jesus here again, he stirs the pot in a greater way. Not only did he say, I am Lord of the Sabbath, who are you to question God for healing, doing that good deed, on that day. Who are you? And now he does the next thing. He goes, and by the way, I'm equal to God. Well, that was a bomb. <laughs> You're what? Yeah, I'm equal to God. That's huge. I mean, the, Jewish, the Jews completely understood the fact that Jesus was making this claim of equality with the divine. In John 5, 18... The first verse Dave read, it says, For this reason, before, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. I mean, at this point, their aggravation, their hatred toward him has escalated to the point of them wanting to kill him. And he's still got a year of ministry to go. It says, Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father. How dare you? Making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. They were, they were infuriated over this issue. In verse 17, 
through verse 24, we see Jesus claims to be equal with God in many ways. Number one, He claims that He's equal with God in person, in essence, in nature. Number two, secondly, Jesus claims to be equal to God in works. In verse 19, He said, For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. I do what God does. I do it like God does it. I do it when God does it. We are like one. We are equal. Thirdly, Jesus claims to be equal to God in power and in authority to God. Equal to God in power and authority. Fourthly, Jesus claims in this portion to be equal to God in honor. I mean, look at it. In John 5, 23, he says, So that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. All will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You mean to say that people are going to honor God and you to the same degree? He said, yeah, that's what's going to happen. He says, the one who does not honor the Son, me, does not honor the Father who sent me. Okay, so imagine somebody walking up to you and saying, if you honor me, you honor God. But if you dishonor me, you dishonor God in the same degree. Like, who do you think you are? Little God? God? Yeah, I am actually God, he says. So, <clears throat> finally, in verse 24, Jesus claims to be equal to God in truth. That means in all these aspects, in nature, in works, in power, in authority, in honor, in truth, Jesus claims to be equal to God. And this just drove them crazy. So in the middle of these claims, we find in verse 21 that he says, he claims that he has the power of life. And in the verse 22, he says he has the authority to make the final judgment on every single person who ever lived. So he sets himself up as the giver of life, and he sets himself up as the one who then judges, ultimately judges those he gave life to. Jesus says He is the one who gives life and He determines the eternal destinies of those lives. Let me read it to you in John 5, 21. He says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. I mean, just look at that verse. He gives life to whom He wishes. His wish be done, not mine. Most people say, no, God gives life to all those who wish to have life. But this scripture is not saying that. This scripture is saying the opposite. No, no, no. God is the one who decides who He gives life to. Did you all see that? So conclusion here. <clears throat> oh, then he says in verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone. But He, God, has given all judgment to the Son. So there He says that He has the right to give life, number one. And number two, He has the right to judge all life. He is therefore both the giver of life to some, those He wishes to give life to, and, to judge that, and, and the judge that condemns others to death. So 
what Jesus claims in verse one and, uh, 21 and 22, giver of life and ultimate judge, he explains in verse 25, 28, and 29. So in other words, he makes this claim, and now he's going to explain the claim he just made. So I am interested in his explanation. So let's look at it. Look at it. <clears throat> First, Jesus explains spiritual resurrection, and then he explains, explains physical resurrection. <clears throat> Did I just say explain? <laughs> <laughs> It's been a long night. <laughs> so he explains. <laughs> so he first explains spiritual resurrection, and then he explains physical resurrection. John 5, 25 and 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now when Jesus repeats the word truly, he goes, This is more true than you realize. Listen up. Truly. For anybody that it didn't hear, truly, here it comes. This is the truth. I say to you, a time is coming in the future and now has arrived in the present. He's standing in that moment when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who? The dead. For just as the Father has life in Himself, so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. So what is Jesus talking about? I mean, this is one of those compacted verses like, all right, whoa, English, please. Well, people believe that Jesus is speaking about a future resurrection, a resurrection at the end times, raising people from graves to life and meeting Jesus in the air, as the Bible says. But that is not what Jesus is speaking of here. He's speaking of a spiritual resurrection. And... Um, the reason he's speaking of a spiritual resurrection is because he says the time is now, the time is coming, future, and has now arrived, is here, right now. In other words, people are hearing his voice now and living. The people standing in front of him are hearing him now and they come into life. Look again at it. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, the time is coming and even now has arrived. Jesus is saying that He has started fulfilling His purpose, which is to give spiritual life, which is eternal life, to the spiritually dead. The time is coming where Jesus is going to fulfill His purpose. He is going to bring life. To who? The dead. Well, all these people standing in front of Him are alive. He says, no, they are spiritually dead, and I'm coming to give them spiritual life. It says it all over the book of John. If you're reading with us the book of John, you'll be surprised and shocked. Staggering amount of times he talks about why he came. So buckle up for a second. Let me just show you that. Don't turn, don't write it down. But in, in John 1.4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Speaking of Jesus. John 3.15, So that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. He came to give life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. He came to bring eternal life. John 3, 36, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. He came to bring life. John 4, 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to what? Eternal life. He came to bring eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. 
John 5.39, you examine the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. Why? Because I'm the one that's bringing the very eternal life the scriptures are talking about. John 6.27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He has life and He disperses life as He wishes. This is what Jesus came to do throughout Scripture. John 6.35, Jesus said to him, Then, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. John 6.68, Simon Peter asked, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Jesus came to bring eternal life to the spiritually dead. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they will have life, as God has life, that's eternal life, and have it how? Abundantly. John 10.28, it doesn't end. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. He came to bring life to the spiritually dead. He says, and I give them eternal life, John 10.28, and they will never perish. John 11.25 says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. The one who believes in me will have life even when he dies physically. John 20 verse 31, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I mean, okay, so you don't have to go too far in the book of John to establish the, why Jesus came to bring life to those who are spiritually dead, eternal spiritual life to a fallen person. So it's very clear that Jesus wasn't a, just a good teacher. He wasn't just a moral standard for all to follow. He was not some kind of guru. He came to give eternal life. He didn't come to improve people's lives. Let me say that again. He didn't come to improve life for a person. He came to make dead people alive. He came to give eternal life to the spiritually dead. And every person born into this sinful world is spiritually dead. This is what Jesus teaches. And only He can bring spiritual dead people back to life. But the question is, how does He do this? How does this happen? John 5, 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he uses truly twice again. I say to you, a time is coming and even now has arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will what? Live. Okay. So the question again Jesus is the one who comes to give life to those the Bible says He wishes to give life to. The question we're asking is, well, how is He going to do it? He's going to do it by speaking, and those who hear Him speak will come alive. Okay? That's what it says right here. Let's look at it again. Truly, truly, verse 25. It says, I say to you, a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, Jesus, and those who hear have ears to hear. Those, you know, the Bible says, those who have ears to hear. 
Those who have ears to hear. How many of you are familiar with that statement? Yes, so he says, those who hear will what? Live. Okay, so he's going to speak life to those who chooses, those he wishes to give life to by speaking to them, and they're going to hear him, and they're going to come alive. We have to understand that this is not referring to people hearing Jesus' words in their natural ears. Why? Because many people who heard Jesus speak only heard Him with, with their natural ears. While their hearts remained untouched, their hearts remained unaddressed, unchanged, unregenerated, stony. A lot of people heard Him speak. How about the Pharisees? Didn't they hear Him speak? Somebody's speaking in tongues back there. <laughs> I'm just waiting for somebody to interpret. <laughs> oh, that's what it is. You did interpret. Okay. <laughs> I love those sounds. So, you know, now I'm trying to figure out where I was. No, <laughs> no, no. No. I'm, no, you're totally fine. Uh, I love it. So here's, um, here, here's the thing. Many people heard Jesus speak and hated him for what he said. Some even wanted to murder him because of what he just said. We saw that, right? So not everybody, who, he's not talking about those who heard him with their natural ears are going to come alive. Not everybody who heard him had their hearts touched or changed in any way. Some became hardened by hearing him speak. They remained unregenerate The hearing of Jesus' voice is a heart hearing, is a hearing with a heart. It is what theologians call the effectual hearing. It's an effectual hearing. It's not just, I listened, but I didn't hear you. How many of you ever had your mother tell you, I know you're listening, but you're not hearing me? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're, yeah. You can repeat what I said, but you're not, you're not listening, are you? And so this is what's happening here. The effectual hearing is when people hear Jesus speak and they go, yes. Their hearts go, yes, I believe what he's saying. Yes, I want to turn, repent, change give myself, walk away from the world. <laughs> yes, I want that. Not, yes, I want to kill that. No, not that guy. The guy that, yes, I want, I want to believe that. That is the effectual hearing. This is right alongside John 3, that Jesus says, you must be born from above. You must be born from above. Like you were born from a mother, in the natural, you have to be spiritually born from above. You are born from above when Jesus, the one who has life and gives life as he wishes, gives it to you. You have to be born from above. You had no choice in your natural birth. You didn't choose which family you were going to be born into, which gender you are going to be born with. You didn't choose which nationality you're going to be born into, you didn't choose which nation, what time in history, which hospital, who your mom's name is, you didn't choose nothing. 
In the same way, you have to be born from God in order to have ears that hear or a heart that hears. This is when God performs a soul miracle in a person when He opens the deaf ears and He opens the blind eyes. Now, I don't know if you can imagine with me, but today in America, what is one of the f number one causes of death in America? Cancer? Heart disease? Okay. So people have many issues, right? Many issues. How many blind people do you see? Not many, right? How many deaf people do you see that are born deaf and blind? Not really. Well, the same thing was true for that day. People had many, many ailments, right? I mean, there were many diseases people were dying from. People were dying early from some. Yet Jesus is known for causing the deaf ears to hear and the blind eyes to open. In the natural, that's what he was doing. Anybody blind? Heal the blind eye. Heal that deaf ear. Why? Because when John the Baptist was in prison and he sent a message to Jesus and he said, Hey, Jesus, I thought you were the Messiah. Why am I left in prison? And Jesus sent him a message back, and this is the message. The blind see and the deaf hear. John understood what was going on. He was performing in the natural to explain and help us understand what he came to do in the spiritual for those he was going to give life. He was going to open their eyes so they could see their need for God and God's plan for them and his plan of salvation. And he was going to open the ears so that when they hear the gospel, they would go, yes, yes. If you heard the gospel and your heart went, yes, I now have a believing heart that repents. Yes, this is me. Guess what? God birthed you from above. Jesus wished to give you eternal life. He birthed you anew. You couldn't have heard Him had you been deaf. You couldn't have seen the truth. Were you blind? Your heart didn't respond if it was a rock. But guess what? He gave you a brand new heart that can respond, believe, and repent. He gave you eyes that can see your need for salvation. And He gave you ears that can hear the truth and respond. Here's Lydia. She was a, she was a woman who made purple clothing. And she was dealing in purple clothing. Paul preaches to a whole crowd. The Bible says, and God opened Lydia's heart. Paul preached to everybody. God opens Lydia's heart so that she could hear the truth and respond to the truth she was hearing from Paul. Jesus came to bring people life. How was He going to do it? He was going to open their eyes and open their ears so that they can hear Him. Why? Because He said there, when the dead will, uh, uh, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. So, this is the voice that saves the hearing heart. This is the voice that penetrates the grave and overcomes that death. This is illustrated when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
In Ephesians, for those of you that don't know, Lazarus was dead multiple days, three days or many days, to the point where he was really stinking. Jesus shows up on the scene. It sounds like everybody's kind of disappointed that he only got there so late. If he had gotten there earlier, he might have stopped Lazarus from dying, but now Lazarus is dead. Now Jesus can do nothing about it. And Jesus, however, planned this because he needed to give you a physical example of what he's doing in the Spirit. He's giving a practical example so we can wrap our minds around what he was doing in spiritual realities. The physical reality was Jesus stood in front of the grave and said, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus came out because Jesus commanded it. Lazarus walked out of the grave. And here's Jesus' illustration of what He's doing to all of us in the Spirit. Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5 says it. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Why? Because you were good? Is that why He's going to make you alive? No. He says, because of His love for us, because of His great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were spiritually dead because of our sins, made us alive together with Christ. But God, because He loved you, made you alive. How? In Christ. Just like Jesus made Lazarus alive. But when we come to verse 27, it changes from spiritual resurrection to physical resurrection. Remember now that not all experience spiritual resurrection, but everybody will experience a physical resurrection. This is where the sheep and the goats are divided, <laughs> separated. So let's go to verse 28 and 29. It says in John 28, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. Now he doesn't say, and now is already, because it isn't yet. This resurrection is all the way in the future. He says, but do not be amazed, for a time is coming in the future when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. Again, everybody hears His voice here. And they will all come out, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Oh. So Jesus here is referring to a future resurrection. He introduces two physical resurrections that will take place at the end of time. Those who experienced a spiritual resurrection during this life will be resurrected unto eternal life, physically resurrected unto eternal life. Those who did not experience a spiritual resurrection here on earth because of their unbelief will be physically resurrected into judgment for all eternity. So there is, a, there is a spiritual resurrection that can happen now, but there will be a physical resurrection that will happen then. And at that physical resurrection, the group that did not have a spiritual resurrection will be resurrected unto eternal damnation in the flesh, and those who were spiritually resurrected here 
will be resurrected physically then unto eternal life forever. All right, that was a mouthful. Did you guys follow that? Okay. Um, the question is, and we're ending with this, the question is, which res physical resurrection am I going to experience? And you have to ask yourself that question. Uh, which physical resurrection will you experience when Jesus' voice calls all men, billions of people, from the graves? So I would like to address the three different scenarios. There are many. But you might be asking, what if I am not sure which resurrection I will be raised to? You might be sitting there with a big old question mark. Will I be physically resurrected unto life or unto damnation? Which one? Well, in John 25, Jesus actually tells us what to do to inherit eternal life. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The question is, does your heart believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for you to be saved? Can you believe that? Does your heart believe that? That's the question. Now, there's a very clear example Jesus gives us as to how somebody gets saved. It's in Luke 18, verse 9 through 13. Luke 18, verse 9 through 13. It says, Now he, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Let me just stop there. What is a parable? Jesus is telling a story that had a natural context in order to explain a spiritual reality because these people needed to be spoon-fed, right? <laughs> and so he's spoon-feeding them. He's giving them a story so he can teach them a spiritual reality. He says, verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and another a tax collector. Pharisees were religious Jewish leaders. They lived very holy lives, supposedly so, and they lived according to the law. They didn't sin. But the tax collectors were known to be sinners. The tax collectors were hated by people because they cheated everybody with their taxes. And so Jesus is now giving us this picture of these two very extreme individuals, a very holy man, very religious Pharisee, and a very unholy cheat, thief, <laughs> sinner, all right, the tax collector. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and another one a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself, this good man. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Man, I'm good. Thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, that's what they are. Crooked, 
adulterers, and even like this tax collector over here. I'm not like anybody. As a matter of fact, now he goes into second drive, in second degree of boasting, and he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, Jesus says, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven. He was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Can we have verse 14 and 15 added there, hon? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Can you see how the one guy was lifted up in his pride and the second guy was on his knees in humility? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then says, I tell you, this man, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. God, I beg you, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, this man here, he will have eternal life. Not the Pharisee. The guy that does everything right, that's so good, that's the moral standard bearer of the nation. No, he will be condemned. Because I resist the proud, God says, and I will give grace to the humble. Look at what it says. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other one, this Pharisee, this man, the tax collector, went home justified before God, made right before God. For all those who exalt themselves, like the Pharisee, will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So if your question is, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What if I'm not sure which resurrection I'll be raised to? This ought to be your immediate prayer, and this ought to be the prayer that you don't stop praying until you are sure that you have eternal life, and that is the tax collector's prayer. God, I beg you, have mercy on me. God, I beg you, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. You see, the person that can't do that, they want to talk away repentance and all of that, is because they don't, um, number one, the whole New Testament's filled with repentance. You know, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's repentance right there. It's changing the way you think. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the churches and He says, unless you repent, I will snuff out your light. Of course there's repentance in the New Testament. This is how salvation happens. You get a new heart. God takes out the stony heart, gives you a new heart that now believes and repents. And repentance isn't something I did in 1974. Repentance is what I do as a lifestyle. I turn to God every day. Well, the moment I turn to God, I'm turning away from something, am I not? Well, this is called repentance. And so, what we do, if, you if you're wondering if you are right with God, then the tax collector's prayer is your prayer. God, have mercy upon me, who art a sinner. But oftentimes, people won't pray that because they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see themselves as missing the mark. They see themselves like the Pharisee, good enough. 
But if you knew who God was and how holy he was, how almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent, how his eternality, every aspect of God, if you knew who God was, then you would understand who you are in comparison to his perfection. And you would go, I need help. There's no compatibility between a holy God and a fallen me. And at that point, when your eyes open to that revelation, you go, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So I want to encourage every person who's asking the question, what, if I, uh, what will happen to me at that physical resurrection? That is your prayer. The tax collector's prayer. Number two, what if my spouse does not believe? What if my spouse does not believe? What if I have a disobedient husband? <laughs> not to me, but to God. What if I have an unbelieving spouse? Because this is usually what happens. If you realize that I realize I believe, but I don't believe my, I don't, my spouse doesn't believe. Doesn't serve. What am I supposed to do? Because I'm desperate for them. Well, here's your verse. 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 4. 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 4. It says, in the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient, not to you, but to the word of God, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your pure and respectful behavior. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely the external braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on apparel. But it should be the hidden person of the heart, which the imperishable quality of a gentle, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. But look at what it says here. That your husband may be won over without a word, but by the behavior that you exude. You are being read daily by those around you. They read you. And if you exude everything that is not the fruits of the Spirit, <laughs> then how are they being ministered to? But they read you. And if your life is an expression of the fruits of God's Spirit, they can't help but be convicted by that and honor your God. So the first is, what if I'm not sure which resurrection I will be raised to? The second question is, what if my spouse does not believe? But the third question is, what if I'm surrounded by family and friends who are argumentative about the gospel, quarrelsome about the Bible, disagreeable and even at times offensive to me over the things of God? Well, 2 Timothy 2, verse 23 and 25 explains... It says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Don't get into arguments all the time about these speculations. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant, that's you, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, skillful in teaching the gospel. Here's the question. Can you articulate the gospel? 
If you can't, you've got to learn to do so. If you cannot share the gospel, you can't minister to people because it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It, the gospel is the voice of Christ. The hearing heart hears and comes alive. It is the gospel that people hear when God gives them life. They don't hear opinions. Opinions has never made anybody alive. It says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching. Then he says, patient when wronged. Patient when wronged. When somebody insults you, when somebody rejects you, when somebody says, yeah, please, just stop all of that, all right? <laughs> you, you're so archaic. <laughs> you're so ancient. You're so backward. You're so narrow-minded. Whatever it is they want to say. It's okay. The Bible says, be patient when wronged in that way. Then he says in verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Correct their perspective. How? With God's truth, not your opinion. Then he says why? He says, if perhaps God may grant, we might say God may give as a gift, those people repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, hey, listen, next time somebody wants to argue with you over the scriptures, over the gospel, be kind, be patient, be long-suffering, correcting in all humility. Because perhaps, just perhaps, God may give them this gift. There it is. This gift of what? Grant them repentance. Perhaps God may give them repentance. It's a gift. It's not a work. Leading to the knowledge of truth. So, if you are saying, what am I supposed to do? I'm not sure whether, which resurrection I'll be raised in. Resurrection to eternal life or resurrection to eternal damnation. The taxpayer prayer is your prayer. If you have children, you beg God for mercy upon your children. You beg. You don't go and you tell them to repeat, you know, say this Hail Mary or just repeat this little prayer after the same thing. Just say these words, repeat after. Okay, good, you say, forget it now. Now go ahead and just live. That's not how salvation works. You beg God to birth them from above, to have mercy upon them, that He, that they will be one of those He wishes to give eternal life to. I beg God for mercy upon my children. Like I beg God for mercy upon me because I'm a sinner. I know they are. I know they are. What if my spouse doesn't believe? Put on the garment of respect, honor, and win them over. What if people around me, family and friends, work associates, are argumentative, quarrelsome, disagreeable, and even offensive? You be long-suffering. You be kind. You be gentle, correcting with truth their answers, believing that God will grant them the gift of repentance. Amen.